Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. We're at CSIS, and I'm very pleased to have you with us today for a conversation with General um, Terrence O'Shaughnessy. He'll be speaking uh, on the issues of his command at U.S. Northern Command, where he has been since May of 2018, and he also is the commander of U.S., um, excuse me, of NORAD, the North, Amer uh, North American Air oh, Space Defense um, Command. Um, General O'Shaughnessy has uh, many hours logged as an F-16 pilot, uh, and he is um, also well known for his expertise on issues across the world from the Pacific to Europe. And so without further ado, General, we're going to let you uh, take it over, um, and you can, you can walk and speak. I'll join okay. you on stage when you're done. You'll see cards in your chairs. You can write down questions as he speaks, and we'll gather questions later. Um, but please join me in a round of applause for General O'Shaughnessy. Well, thank you, Kath, and it, it truly is a, a treat to be here uh, for a couple reasons. One, it's great to be able to share some time with some folks that are interested in Homeland Defense uh, and true experts within the Homeland Defense uh, portfolio. I hope to be able to tell you a little bit about some of the things that we're doing both at NORTHCOM and NORAD, some of the things that we're thinking about, uh, but also hopefully stir uh, some questions uh, so we can talk about what you want to talk about. Uh, to start off with, though, I'm going to start with the, the bold uh, statement on the bottom there that we have the watch. And it's important to remember that 24-7, uh, 365, we have American uh, and Canadian airmen, soldiers, sailors, Marines on watch uh, to defend our great nations. And we do so a lot of times under the radar. And that America and Canada doesn't necessarily see what the team's doing day in and day out, but please uh, have a sense of confidence uh, that we are out there ready to defend uh, at a moment's notice. Uh, so let me uh, walk through a couple things, uh, give uh, some basic background and some of the things that we're focused on, but again, uh, happy to uh, take questions uh, as we kind of talk about the issues that you'd like to talk about as well. Uh, slide. So I think this crowd knows well, the security environment is rapidly changing. Uh, I think our most uh, of our strategic guidance tells us that, uh, and I think it's pretty obvious just watching the news on any given day that we see the rapid change in the security environment but what we don't talk about as much is what is the impact of that rapidly changing security environment on us with respect to defending the homeland. You know, when I started my career um, in the mid-80s going to, going to the academy, then going out into the operational world, and, and really the, from that point to now, we haven't had to focus that much about truly defending our nation. We were wrapping up the Cold War, transitioning out where we were bringing the fight to other people. And we essentially brought the fight away from home without a lot of concern about the repercussions for what would happen back in the homelands. Now, within that, of course, we're making sure that we're able to defend against terrorists and those kinds of events without a doubt. But from the broader peer-to-peer -peer competitor, that's not something we have really had to deal with for several decades. And I would say that dynamic is changing. And so now as we look at the security environment, we have to think about peer competitors. We have to think about potential adversaries that have the ability to reach out and touch us in ways that we haven't had to deal with in a long, long time. And if you just highlight some of the things happening within the security environment, clearly we see all the activities that China has all, all around the world, not just within the Pacific, but really all around the world. Uh, and you can see in the top right there is a, a picture of an icebreaker, of a Chinese uh, icebreaker, and more and more we see Chinese activity uh, within the Arctic. And clearly we 
see all the trade negotiations that are going on. We see the implications of intellectual property theft. We see the implications of this competition that we find ourselves in with China. And then from the Russia standpoint, similarly, we have an interesting dynamic with Russia where they have built very capable military capability that has the ability to try and hold us at risk in ways that we haven't had to deal with in a long, long time. And of course, on the news, more prevalent in the most recent days has been some of the flare up in Iran and what are the consequences of that, and then North Korea and all the consequences of that as we try to make sure that we are able to provide the ballistic missile defense to give our senior leaders the decision space that they need. So if you go to the next slide, I'll talk a little bit about kind of the lens I look through. What are my guiding, uh, guide, guidance principles that I get from my senior leadership? And I will say, in all my time in the military, I've never been in a position where that guidance was so clear and so consistent. And whilst we've had different pieces and parts of this throughout my career, we'll have a really good national security strategy, we'll have a really good national defense strategy, to have them all aligned vertically the way they are today is something that I have not uh, seen uh, in my career. But they're all very clear about the changing security environment we see ourselves in, about the fact that we have to change the way we do business, about the fact that homeland defense is our top priority. From the national security strategy, it tells us that is our, it is our responsibility to ensure that we protect the American people, defend the homeland, and defend our American way of life. And even from the Canadian side, where from my NORAD hat, it's a binational command with both reporting to both the US senior leadership and on the Canadian side to the Canadian senior leadership all the way up to the prime minister. On the Canadian side, you have strong, secure, engaged. This is very similar outlook on the, the security environment that we find ourselves in. And so the guidance is very clear. The guidance is that we have to think about home and defense. We have to think about how are we going to secure the United States of America and Canada against all threats. And in the past, we've been able to certainly do this on the nuclear front. More and more, though, we have to think about this on the conventional front uh, as well. I think the Missile Defense Review does a good job of some articulating some of the taking the strategic level down to the operational level and really talking about some of the specific threats that we might find ourselves in and what are the things that we have to do. And it talks about some of the threats that we have against, for example, uh, a Russia uh, capability that they've been continually to advance and our ability to increase our ability to defend against them. And of course, it talks about things like North Korea and maintaining the ability to defend against the ballistic missiles that North Korea might develop, uh, as well as looking, to the, looking into the future with other countries such as Iran, if they chose to develop said capability going in the future, are we postured to be able to defend against that? But in all of them, the message is very, very clear. We have to have that capability, we have to maintain the competitive advantage, and we have to maintain the ability to defend ourselves both in the US and in Canada for the NORAD side. Slide. So let me stop for a moment and just kind of take this opportunity to tell you a little bit about the great things that our Amherst soldiers, sailors, Marines, and civilians are doing within NORTHCOM and NORAD. And some of them may surprise you and some of them may not. But we have the wide spectrum of capability, capacity, and mission set within NORTHCOM in particular uh, with what we are having to do every single day. And you, you start in the top left there and all the way from things like when President Bush passed away of running the state funeral and making sure that we have a plan to honor those that led our nation. Um, and those are, that's just representative of the types of things that you kind of say, well, somebody should be doing that. Who is it that's doing it? In many cases, it's NORTHCOM that actually has that responsibility. Just starting today, we have a, the Boy Scout Jamboree in West Virginia. Uh, we're providing assistance for the Boy Scout Jamboree. Now, you do that, and then all at the same time you're doing that, 
we're training with some of our metropolitan police. So in this case, the picture there was with the New York City police to respond to a chemical, biological, radionuclear incident that would happen here. So you have the full wide spectrum of things that we're preparing for. And in addition, you have things that we're doing on a normal basis, like Operation Noble Eagle, where we have aircraft, we have radars, we have command centers standing by across the US and Canada to be able to respond to some sort of a 9-11 type event or any kind of event where we needed to launch a capability to defend ourselves against a, an attack uh, against America or Canada. Simultaneously, we're doing things, for example, when the Russians fly their long-range aviation, we use our NORAD assets to intercept those aircraft. We use our ability to monitor our sovereign airspace and be able to respond appropriately, in this case to the Russians, but whoever would be flying throughout either international airspace or approaching on us within our sovereign territory. We also provide protection for the president. So wherever the president is, we're typically uh, there ready to respond, whether it be with an airborne cap or a fighter alert somewhere close by, we're always able to respond. And all these things happen 24-7, 365. So while, while on the one side we're helping out the Boy Scouts, we're protecting the president, we're also providing ballistic missile defense against any rogue nation that might throw a missile towards us. And simultaneously, we're ready to respond to whatever the event would be that would cause us to defend our great country. Slide. One thing though that I, I, maybe I didn't realize fully but when I took on this job was how tied we were gonna be to the Department of Homeland Security. You, can't, you simply can't separate Homeland Defense and Homeland Security. Given the threats that we're faced with, we find ourselves intertwined with all the things the Department of Homeland Security is doing. Whether it be, how are we gonna to respond to defend our critical infrastructure? And that defense doesn't necessarily need to be kinetic. It can be cyber, for example. It can be, the, for example, in the 2018 elections, we partnered with Department of Homeland Security and working with CyberCom to provide some capability to protect our electoral system against cyber attacks. We're also able to get out and make sure that we are helping lead federal agency, in this case, secure the border. So you see a lot of our folks that are doing great work down on the southern border, helping out our Customs and Border Protection and the great work that they're doing to secure our southern border. You also see on big events, whether it be inauguration, national security events that have rise to such a level that we feel that they might be threatened, then we partner with Department of Homeland Security to provide the protection for those events. More and more we find as we look at some of our peer adversary that they don't look at the separation between military targets and civilian targets like we might look at them. And so we see a blurring of those lines. So when we look at our ability to defend our nation, we can't just look at that from the lens of defending Department of Defense capability capacity. We have to look at how do we defend the broader national capability and the critical infrastructure. And so in that light, we've teamed up with Department of Homeland Security and things like their NKIC and their ability to understand the importance of our critical infrastructure, what are the most important nodes that we need to protect, and we partner with them. In fact, I would say I actually meet with both previous Secretary Nielsen and now Secretary McElhinney as much or more than I meet with the Department of Defense secretaries. And that's just because of how intertwined we are with the Department of Homeland Security. Slide. One thing I wanna talk a little bit about, because it is a changing dynamic, is as we approach the future, I think we have to think differently about how we're leveraging technology. 
Over time, you can see the graph there used to be Department of Defense. And in fact, if you take the graph further back to the left in time, you actually see they actually crossed. But more and more, we see that it's not just the Department of Defense that's doing the great research and development. It's some of our commercial partners are doing incredible research and development. And we have to figure out, how do we leverage that capability? And the story I like to tell is I was an Air Operations Center commander when I was 06. And in that time, I would bring all sorts of people, civilian DVs, other folks in to see our command center. And their jaw would drop when they saw the capability capacity that we had in that command center to have situational awareness, domain awareness within that command center. When I bring those same type of people into our command centers today, their jaw also drops. But it's because we have not kept up with the technology. And whilst we have great systems, incredible systems for very specific capabilities that we need, whether it be for specific domain awareness, whether it be attack assessment, whether it be ballistic missile defense, but what we haven't really done is been able to bring all those together in ways that are seamless. And you go to some of the commercial command centers that are out there, and you see their ability to use data in ways that we haven't fully embraced yet. And so my pitch is we have to really leverage commercial technology as much as the Department of Defense's research and development and combine them together to get us the best capability to defend our nation. Slide. So as we go into the future and look at what is the future defense design that we need here in North America, kind of put a couple of these thoughts together. First is we have right now a system that was designed principally starting in the Cold War and has been modified over time to respond to today's threats. But today's threats and the future threats are significantly different than what they were designed for. And so how do we look at this going into the future and what is that design that we need to have and that we need to build and bring together in ways that allow us to have that same competitive advantage to be able to defend that we've always had the luxury of having. And so to me, it's pretty simple. We need to have domain awareness. That domain awareness is gonna be brought up by a system of sensors. Those systems have to be undersea because we have to think about the approaches from the oceans. A short time ago, the oceans were kind of moats, right? And protect us, a little bit of a buffer. Now those same areas are avenues of attack, potential avenues of attack for our adversaries. So we need to have undersea, we need to have maritime sensors, we need to have terrestrial-based sensors, we need to have airborne sensors, we need to have near-space sensors, and we need to have space-based sensors. And all those sensors have to be able to tie together into an architecture, an architecture that doesn't care where the sensor is, an architecture that doesn't care what company built that sensor, an architecture that can take them all and bring all that information together to a command and control center that can be able to make good use of that. And then we have to leverage technology to apply AI so that we increase our ability to actually use that data in ways that we haven't fully embraced as of yet. We have to, we have to embrace edge computing. We have to embrace the ability to determine what we'll be able to do in a time when maybe we didn't have that data available and we could push it to the edges to do some work. And then we have to have defeat mechanisms. We have to flip the cost curve, for example, on cruise missile defense. Right now, our interceptors cost a lot of money compared to the cost of an inbound missile. We need to flip that cost curve. We have to find a way that we can have a deep magazine with a high rate of fire that can protect an area, not just a point. These are all the things that we have to work on and we have to bring them together into a holistic defense design. That's what we're looking at going into the future. And that's probably gonna be a combination of commercial industry, partnering with companies such as those that are proliferating LEO with incredible capability that we can take advantage of for communications, 
as well as for sensors. And we have to find a way to bring them together the way our commercial partners are doing every day. Slide. One aspect we also have to think about is the changing nature of deterrence. You think about, we've thought a lot, proverbial, all of us together have thought an awful lot about strategic deterrence. We've talked a lot about nuclear deterrence. But the strategic environment is fundamentally changing. And to me, we have to further think about what is conventional deterrence below the level of nuclear war in a manner where we have peer competitors that can reach out and try to coerce us because of their ability to reach out in ways that maybe they haven't been, had the capability or capacity to in the past. And what does that deterrence look like? How much of that is cost and position? How much of that is denying them the ability to achieve their objective? And how are we going to communicate that to our potential adversaries so they understand our intent? To me, these are things that we need to think more about. And while there's a ton of thinking about deterrence, I think the security environment has changed to the point we have to rethink our ways of deterrence to make sure that they're applicable to our adversaries of today and that we're not just using our own lens to look at that, that we're looking at the lens of our adversaries and will what we, what we are doing actually deter an adversary from taking action. And that's what I'm particularly interested in this crowd, uh, both here in some more discussion today as well as in follow-on engagements as we kind of think our way through what does conventional deterrence look like going into the future. Slide. So let me pause, pause there and we'll take some questions, but again, I'll, I'll, I'll end where I started in that as we sit here today in 24-7, 365, you have great Americans and great Canadians on alert, ready to respond to whatever today brings and whatever the future brings. With that, I stand by ready for your uh, questions and comments. Thank you. Um, so the great set of issues, so broad. We could go in many <laughs> different directions. We're sure you feel like that every day. Let's start in the border security piece just because I know people are interested in that. And maybe you could give a brief tutorial of DOD's history on border security and maybe a little bit on the authorities under which it operates. Sure. So let me just start by saying we are uh, trying to be great partners to our Department of Homeland Security brethren. Uh, they have been given uh, a very difficult and challenging task. Uh, Department of Defense uh, agrees that Homeland Security and border security, Homeland Defense are all linked. And so with that, we are not the lead federal agency, nor do we want to be the lead federal agency necessarily relative to border security, but we do have a lead federal agency that needs, needs some assistance, and we're providing that. Specifically, though, to be clear, our, our principally soldiers and Marines um, that are down doing the mission now uh, they're doing things to enable Customs and Border Protection to do their mission of securing the border. Uh, we don't take on direct law enforcement capability and capacity within the Title 10 force. Uh, we are doing things to provide, for example, uh, rapid response capability. Uh, we're providing engineer capability. We're providing uh, military police capability that in times of crisis they could come and help protect the Customs and Border agents. Uh, we're providing surveillance capability, both in airborne surveillance as well as on mobile um, sites, terrestrial-based. Uh, we're providing assistance to free up, we call badges to border, to free up agents to get out to the border to be able to better do their role. The whole intent, though, is that this is in support of Customs and Border Protection. 
we're, we're trying to be good partners. We feel that this is appropriate for us to do at this time. How long this will go will be interesting to see. We've had a history, as Kath talked through, of supporting uh, the border whenever it rises to the point we need to do so. Uh, and all of our efforts to date has really been in order to enable our partners, Customs Border Protection under the Department of Homeland Security, in order to do their mission set. Great. The, the classic missions, if you will, for, for the U.S. military, and then, of course, now under York Bennett Northcom, have been maritime air land approaches. We, we'll talk about all of those, but I want to jump a little bit because you mentioned this issue of deterrence and more generally the, the, the blurriness, the fuzziness of the world in which we live, and certainly space and cyber are two domains where we see that play out. Um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you think about NORTHCOM's role in deterring and responding to, whether as support to civil authorities or as part of the homeland defense role, so where the military is lead, in other words, in those domains. Yeah, and I see uh, the good news as we look at the increased uh, national um, awareness of space and the importance of space going in the future, something I'm, uh, pretty favorable of. Uh, General Jay Raymond is a phenomenal partner um, we are, our headquarters at, um, currently as Air Force Base Command and us are literally right next to each other. We live right next to each other, so we are linked. That will continue as we go to the, into the future, no doubt, whether they're physically there or not. Um, but the important, shift that, the, the important part that we show is it doesn't matter what domain you're in. If you're, if you're in space, if you're undersea, if you're terrestrial, um, our ability to defend our nation, defend our national assets is something that we need to be able to have. And that deterrence really need to apply across the board on all domains. It really shouldn't just be focused on one single domain. As we do go forward, I think though, taking the cyber also as an example, you know, if you think about from a national capability, how much we rely on space and cyber uh, in order uh, for the country just to go through its daily battle rhythm. Think about all the things that happen within our nation and within Canada for the NORAD perspective that happen that are dependent on the cyber and the space. And so you can't separate those out. It's the same, same kind of concept with DHS. Is they're, they're just so critical together. Um, and so with that, uh, our great partnership goes all the way from our you know, lowest level AOs all the way up to the senior leadership of this dialogue of how do we advance deterrence? How do we think about this going into the future because the strategic environment has fundamentally changed? How do we look at this with the proliferation of space, the access to space that's fundamentally changing as we speak? Uh, and the, from a cyber perspective, are both opportunities and challenges and vulnerabilities that we have in cyber and how do those actually impact us, uh, not only from the Department of Defense, but from the national perspective. In some of these more um, technical areas, are you finding that the civilian counterparts, whether at the federal level or, or, or otherwise, but presumably coming in through the federal level, have a good understanding of what DOD can bring to the table? Are you doing, you know, do you feel like you're, you're, you're sort of putting forward solutions that they may not have thought of? I mean, how would you describe the, the interaction? You mentioned you work more with the DHS leadership on it because they're presumably very much in the same space right. as you. Talk a little bit about how that plays out. Yeah, I think, uh, one, there's a great partnership and a and great willingness to collaborate and desire to collaborate, uh, certainly within the Department of Homeland Security as we look at resiliency as us as a nation. Um, and so as such, uh, we, we've, we're great partners at, at all levels. I think as we look at some of the things that we're doing is awareness. Um, 
many of the things that we do are simply to make sure people understand the nature of the threat, understand uh, the need for resilience, uh, the, the demand um, that, that might be out there relative to being able to defend yourself, um, and where are those lines of what is a, a ultimately a responsibility of the individual, whether it be a company uh, or an agency or an organization, and where do the lines from the national and federal level uh, intersect? Yeah. Um, you had some pictures, and I think you may have also had a voiceover a little bit on election security, which is one, I mean, there are many areas right. we could be talking about, but because that's so prominent, um, love to hear you talk about what NORTHCOM has done that you can talk about, and how NORTHCOM is positioned to help um, at, at the, through the federal link-in uh, for election security going forward. Right, it was, it was actually uh, interesting uh, as we went forward into the 2018 uh, election season and found that really, if you, it's good to take a step back and think about these are actually state-run electoral uh, systems that then feed into the national level. And in actuality, that turned out to be really close to the way we do hurricanes, right? When you think about how do we respond to a hurricane in a particular state, the governor runs the broad level uh, response to that hurricane. The governor's National Guard will also be part of that response. And then FEMA, uh, with the Department of Defense as a, as a supporting agency, will then provide federal assistance to that state at the state priorities. When we looked at the said, okay, well, how are we going to then apply federal capability to a state? Because in actuality, a particular state is going to have a hard time being able to prepare to defend against a state actor. Uh, just based on uh, the, the capability and capacity we see from some uh, state actors out there. We wanted to make sure that they were postured for success. And so we actually took that same model, the defense support to civil authorities model that we use for hurricanes, and applied that to cyber. And so we brought, we, we brought in Paul Nakasone from Cyber Command. We brought in Joe Wengel from the National Guard Bureau. We brought in every single tag, every single lead of each state and they all made it except for two, and they had representative only because they were actually in the midst of a hurricane as that actually was happening. And every single one of them came out with their teams, and we were able to present them with the information that they needed to have the sensors and, and some actual sensors that they could put on their systems so that they could understand when they needed to, to, to ask for help. Um, that, in, in full coordination with the Department of Homeland Security and the efforts that they were doing, allowed us to have the federal capability applied to the Defense Support to Civil Authorities to be able to apply to a state electoral system. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a good model, it's a model we'll use going forward, and it, it ends up being, like so many things, it's that partnership. It's a partner between Department of Homeland Security, it's a partner between uh, Cyber Command, and it's department uh, uh, coordination and collaboration with NORTHCOM. And looking forward is the thought that you would basically take that model, that was a successful model, you'll bring it forward, are there any changes you all are thinking? That's that right, we thought that it was it, it very successful, of course, as always, we, we, we debriefed and sure. found some things that we'll, we'll tweak. Uh, and in the end, just to be clear, the cyber command are the ones who have the technical capability. Right. We are the forum of the, the conduit of which we can then apply some of that capability using our National Guard brethren and partners uh, as part of that uh, forum. So one of the interesting, slightly terrifying, but interesting intellectually things about the world we live in is international and national or domestic and international, hard these days to find the line when you're thinking from a security perspective. Um, your world also obviously intersects the federal system, right? So what's state, what's local, what's individual, what's private. Um, more, I mean, you, you live, if you will, at the center of what many of us study all the time as a very complex environment. 
what is your sense about the areas within that where you think United States, DOD, however you want to frame it, we're making progress, we're understanding, we're getting better, and where do you think they're real, um, the issues that are really the sticky wickets, if you will, that we really have to work through in that system to get better at defending ourselves? Well, first, I think we, uh, there's a growing understanding, I think, and in, in clear-eyed look at the environment that we find ourselves in. And so I think that in itself has brought interest, and then the interest brings the collaboration that needs to happen. Second, I think uh, Cyber Command has been given additional authorities, and that's allowed them mm -hmm. to be a little more proactive this and is interactive. This persistent engagement. Exactly, yeah. and, and it's really paying off great. General Nakasone is, is not only a great partner, but he's doing uh, amazing things, I think, for our nation uh, within that role. And I think that's really helped uh, that dynamic as well. Uh, in addition, uh, his ability to also operate not only with Department of Homeland Security partner, but also with the uh, commercial side, as we look at it from a national perspective, I think is ever increasing. And it's because of the awareness that uh, some of this responsibility clearly relies on the individual companies, mm -hmm. organizations, uh, et cetera. Uh, and some of it is something that needs to be handled at the national level and finding exactly where that line is and how, mm -hmm. how we actually work those seams together so we don't find ourselves vulnerable and we lose our resilience mm -hmm. uh, is continue to be important as we go forward. What, what's the pitch you do give or would give to private companies in particular to get them to think of themselves as part of this resilient infrastructure that, that needs to be um, sort of at the, on their tippy toes to defend and in communication rather than distrustful of the government. Yeah, well, on one side I'd say, I mean, we do uh, make sure that we do discuss the fact that there is a internal, there is a responsibility unto the company itself to mm -hmm. provide the appropriate level of protection. Uh, there's also uh, an understanding and a sh uh, uh, I think an increasing awareness of the shared resources that we have together. So whether that's a, uh, it's just sharing knowledge of a particular capability that's out there that we are better mm -hmm. able today than we were before to be able to share some of the information with companies. I think more and more as they see that, they clearly see that the federal government, whether that be from the Department of Homeland Security, whether that be from Cyber Command, whether it be from Northcom, mm -hmm. is, is here to ultimately to help. And, and together we can build that resilience that we can't if we just do it in stovepipes. Great, all right, let's move up that escalation uh, arrow a little bit. Um, and please do um, pull, pull up your cards if you have questions. We have folks who are ready to walk around for those. Um, so we talked that we were gonna come back on the air and maritime, maybe we start on the maritime. You explicitly mentioned cruise missile defense, big cost imposing problem, a lot of shoreline, a lot of coast. Um, and a lot of potential threats from the Russians sort of at the, at the high end, if you will, presumably to lower end. Um, do you think there are solution sets out there to bend the cost curve in the way you're thinking? And can you talk about what you think those are? Yeah, I do think that solutions are gonna be available. Are they available today? Well, we're working on it. Um, I would say though that, that the, the overall push to emphasize cruise missile defense is something that is uh, gaining some traction. Mm -hmm. I think there tends to be a natural tendency to talk about ballistic missile defense and we spend 10, 11, 12 billion dollars a year on, mm -hmm. on uh, ballistic missile defense depending on the year. Uh, and now there's a lot of discussion about hypersonics, right? Mm -hmm. And how we have to garner a capability to be able to defend against hypersonics. But surprisingly, there's not that much conversation about cruise missiles. Mm -hmm. And when I look at the cruise missile threat, I see that as one of the biggest threats that we face. Uh, if you look at the northern approaches through uh, the Arctic, uh, that's, a, that's a key avenue of approach that we have to be able to defend. That's places where we haven't traditionally operated. 
Uh, we haven't trained up there to the level that we probably should have over the last several decades. So we're seeing a re reinvigorance of our ability to operate within the Arctic and the need to operate in the Arctic and the ability to defend ourselves against attacks coming from the Arctic. I would also say when you look at some of the capabilities like the SEV-class submarines that the Russians built, mm -hmm. very capable submarine that can carry cruise missiles with the intent to hold us at risk. So we have to maintain our ability to defend against those going forward. Uh, whilst we certainly can do that from a point defense capability and you can continue to work our way uh, that way, uh, applying that technology to that problem set is something I think we need to focus on. We've been working very closely with uh, certainly with OSD uh, as trying to continue to advance our capability. And this isn't just a homeland defense problem. If you look at the proliferation of cruise missiles all over the world, certainly coming from the Pacific theater, that is a very difficult challenge for, the, uh, for Phil Davidson and his team to be able to have to deal with respect to the proliferation of the Chinese cruise missile threat. So this is mm -hmm. not something just specific to Russia or something very specific to the home and defense. This is a capability capacity that we need to continue to develop, I think, uh, really for our, our, our ability to operate all, all over the world. And so moving over into ballistic missile defense, because you mentioned it, um, so you have these cruise missile, and I should have said low slow flyer issues that aren't necessarily right. cruise missile, but create a lot of challenges in the homeland. Um, so we can come back to that if you're interested. Um, but at the ballistic missile defense side, we also have this cost imposition challenge where we have a proliferation of states, North Korea being a, a good example. We built the national missile defense system around a set of assumptions that you know, may or may not be still considered true. Where do you think we should be headed on ballistic missile defense? Well, I'd say first off, we're in a very good place. I can, I can very confidently say right now we have the ability to defend against the ballistic missile threat, for example, that we face from North Korea mm -hmm. as an example. Um, that is an incredibly important capability to maintain uh, and to continue to advance going forward. Um, as we do look to go forward, though, we have to, uh, I think, bear in mind what are the things that we can do. For our vantage point, having the radars that mm -hmm. can give us the discrimination uh, will allow us to increase our ability to defend. Uh, continuing to increase our capacity, so looking at the additional 20 missiles that we'll put into the, the new missile field that's being developed, and then continuing to make sure that we stay ahead of the threat uh, in order to give our senior leadership the ability to have the confidence that we can defend against any attack from, a, for example, in North Korea. And so for in the case of the U.S.-Russia strategic stability relationship, we have long told the Russians, you know, we are focused on Iran and North Korea. The relationship with Russia is in a different place in terms of their a very clear intent to demonstrate, among other things, nuclear capability. What would you say to those who talk about missile defense in the context of Russia? What's the right way to think about missile defense as it relates to Russia? Yeah, to be clear, the missile defense that we currently have with the GBIs is a limited missile defense specifically designed against a North Korea type threat, not a Russia or a China. And, then, and that's, that's the site mm -hmm. picture we have, and I don't see that changing going forward. Um, what we do see, though, as we look at the, you know, there's a big change between a nuclear missile attack and a cruise missile attack. And so what I see Russia doing is developing, in my opinion, mm -hmm. uh, very clearly developing capability and capacity that can hold us at risk, mm -hmm. intended to hold us at risk, if we don't continue to advance our defenses. At a le level Trying that to is come before. below the threshold. It, exactly, is your point. right. And yeah. so the point being, and it kind of goes to the terms discussion. It's one yeah. thing to, to go up to a strategic uh, engagement on the nuclear side, it's quite a different one. If, say, a regional conflict was developing within 
um, uh, within U the UCOM theater of operations over in Europe. Um, and we thought that they wanted to influence and shape our diplomats. They wanted to be able to shape the decisions we make about our involvement there. Um, their ability to hold us at risk or not hold us at yeah. risk uh, may very well sway our, our senior leadership. And so that we feel a commitment that we have to continue to advance our ability to defend our nation so as to not be coerced into action uh, mm -hmm. at the conventional level um, that, that doesn't reach the nuclear level. Um, and so that continued advancement, our ability to defend against cruise missiles, defend against the long-range aviation, defend against the submarines, that conventional defense capability that we as a nation haven't focused that much on from a homeland defense right. side is something that we've reinvigorated to maintain that competitive advantage going forward. Where, where we have been invested since 9-11 is in the, in the CAP system, the sort of right. the tactical aircraft and presumably air, some limited air defense capability in key places. Is that the right way to think about, how, what's the best way to think about air defense inside the United States today from, from a NORAD perspective? Right. So I think that threat stream continues. So certainly the Operation Noble Eagle and what we've done for some period of time since 9-11 continues to be important. So I see that going into the future, but it's adding more and more layers to that defense that would give you the capability to defend against a broader mission set mm -hmm. than just the, in this case, the hijacking, those kinds of scenarios. So NORAD, obviously, a binational command. Um, U.S.-Canadian relations are not at their highest point. Can you talk a little bit about the health of the relationship as you experience it as the commander of um, NORAD in the areas that you work? Sure, and I think this is one of the beauties of the mill-to-mill relationships we have all over the globe. Any relationship, you're going to have ups and downs. Ups, you know, a marriage has ups and downs. A, a relationship, whether it be U.S. and Canada, U.S. and Mexico, um, whoever, uh, any two countries you put together, there's going to be ups and downs. But what I find is that mill-to-mill -mill relationship just remains rock steady. And that's the same case with the Canadian uh, relationship. Uh, our mill-to-mill -mill, uh, relationship is strong as it ever been. Uh, our NORAD has over 61 years now of a binational command working together to defend both of our nations together against set threats in the uh, aerospace domain. Uh, that is as strong as it's ever been. And we're continuing to advance and look at what does NORAD of tomorrow look like uh, to go after some of these advancing threats. Great. Unfunded requirements, gotta <laughs> ask that. Do you have anything on the top of your list that's not, not quite there in the, in the d budget debate today? Yeah, so I won't talk specifically to the, uh, yes. uh, what we have in our, on our list per se, but I will say I'll break it down into really three, three areas. The first is domain awareness. You know, we, we have to continue to advance our ability to maintain our domain awareness across not only our sovereign territory, but the approaches uh, uh, to us. Uh, two, we need that architecture, right? We, we have to advance from these stovepipe systems uh, to this broad level architecture that can be, that's clearly joint, it's gotta be coalition, uh, and it's got to be able to ingest all of the various sensors that we might have out there and be able to bring it to a command and control uh, capability. And we're actually moving out in some of that with, um, for example, our partnership with DIU, where we're taking some innovative approaches to bring that together. Uh, and then in the end, we, we have to flip the cost curve. You know, that, that's one of our mm -hmm. mission sets is we, we have to find a way to have this defeat mechanism that can grow from just a point defense capability to a broader area defense capability and ultimately have it at a cost uh, that would allow us to, to set up the system that would be national. Uh, always been a big issue around FAA's radar system. Is that part of how you, are you in deep conversations with FAA about their piece of this on air safety and security? We are, and, and, and both that as well as the UAS, uh, or yes. counter UAS, small UAS is another uh, great partnership we have with FAA. But in the end, it's actually an interesting perspective. Um, is the FAA obviously is very concerned about safety uh, and flight safety, and they're essentially uh, focused on the compliant 
uh, member, right? And you think about it, FAA, yes. you know, whether that means that someone's gonna, in the aircraft, they're gonna turn on their squawk, right? So that the, yes. the radars don't have to see them because they're squawking and you can see them. We're very interested in the non-compliant, right? And so sometimes it does bring us to a little bit of a different perspective um, with the FAA and where we see that uh, becoming challenging uh, is obviously in their revamping of their radar system, their national mm -hmm. radar system. Um, and we're working closely with them to, to make sure any gaps that we have as they bring FAA radar capability down that feed into our systems that we are actually able to bring up capability that gives us the same domain awareness. But also on the UAS front, and just right here in the national capital region, as we look forward into what is the future use of UAS is to del for deliveries, as an example. Sure. FAA uh, has, has, a, has a perspective, we have a perspective, and then we're working together to try to align those. Um, one last question before we go to the audience list, which hopefully is coming my way, um, and that's on Arctic. We, you mentioned yeah. the approaches, but um, start with just a description of NORTHCOM's role inside DOD with regard to the Arctic, which is an, it seems to be, you know, for those of us on the outside, it seems to be a changing picture from time to time. And then um, how Americans should be thinking about the Arctic as a security issue. Yeah, thanks for that. And one, I, I, I really appreciate the increasing awareness of the importance of the Arctic going forward. See more and more, we see in the dialogue, whether that be in the newspaper and the various opinion articles, or whether that be in the, in the academia discussions that we see going forward. Um, or whether you see the, the Arctic Council that just, uh, just met, you see more and mm -hmm. more understanding of the importance of the Arctic. From our perspective, a couple of things I would, I would say. One, is, as our Secretary of State mentioned, out of the Arctic Council is it's important that we're clear-eyed about this. Mm. To, to, be, to be clear, we, we want to make sure that uh, we, are, we embrace cooperation within the Arctic to the absolute extent that we can. But we have to be clear-eyed about what others are doing so that we don't, in the spirit of cooperation, allow others to take advantage of all the other cooperation that is going on. And so the rules-based international order that is alive and well in the rest of the world has to be applied with that same template uh, to the Arctic. Uh, we have to make sure that, the, that we support the rules-based international order that we, which is really the global operating system, if you will, that we apply the same template there, uh, whilst at the same time uh, ensuring that the cooperation uh, remains as much as possible. So from our vantage point, I don't necessarily see the Arctic sparking like, say, a South China Sea that could spark into a, a conflict mm -hmm. out of something that happens at a tactical level that could then jump up into a strategic level. As much as I see it as a threat of an avenue of approach, if you look up the buildup of Russia and what they've done, to some degree that's a natural buildup based on their own GDP and the percent of the GDP that comes from the Arctic, um, the importance of the Arctic to that them as a nation. Uh, but you see over and above that, you see capability being mm -hmm. uh, built there. And so we have to question, you know, is that a threat to us? And my assessment is yes. And so we have to make sure that we have the ability to operate there. The Arctic is a place that you can't just pick up and go to the Arctic, right? I mean, you can pick up and go most places in the world and whatever training you've had in other places is gonna apply more or less to that. The Arctic is much, much different. And so if we aren't up there exercising, if we aren't up there training, if we aren't actually up there um, making sure we have the right kit, the right experiences, then we won't necessarily be successful if we are called to go to the Arctic. And so we're really working with the services mm -hmm. to increase the exercises, increase the, the, the way that each of the services are participating within the Arctic. And that falls within our role as within the Unified Command Plan, NORTHCOM is designated as the Arctic Advocate. And what does that actually mean? We certainly advocate for Arctic capabilities, but we also advocate for the, the exercises, the getting our crews the experience to operate in that environment, to make sure we bring up the platforms up there that can operate in that very harsh environment and make sure they operate appropriately. Uh, we're making sure that we have the right places to operate from. 
Uh, we're reinvigorating some of the locations that we had um, in the past, uh, not, uh, not spend as much uh, infrastructure support to, and seeing if we need to increase our investment in the Arctic in order to be able to operate there. Great. I don't have a question, so I'm going to keep going. But so let me, I have plenty I can talk yeah, to you about. Sure. Don't worry. So on um, bio threats, um, yeah. historically, Northcom's been pulled in on issues around, oh, thank you, Joe, uh, about pandemics. Um, certainly, we have the possibility of state-based actors um, and bio threats. What's been Northcom's, as you watch the threat progress, people can get CRISPR, of course, in their home. Any There's a burgeoning array of challenges on bio. How are you all plugged into that challenge? Yeah, so we, we partner uh, much like we do in the chemical, biological, radio, nu nuclear aspect across yeah. the nation with both the local law enforcement uh, as with the Department of Homeland Security, with the FBI, both from the threat on understanding what the threat is, as well as understanding uh, what is uh, our capability capacity in order to, to respond. And so it goes all the way from local partnerships uh, to the national level partnerships that we have, and we're in, all, in the appropriate dialogues as we look forward. Uh, but as you see, you know, the world is so connected yeah. now that even a non-nefarious uh, event could actually cause some significant challenges for us, so we continue to be postured to respond. And you're doing, assume you're doing planning as part of an interagency focus on these a issues? Absolutely, and then yeah. more on the on the chemical side, but for example, I just over in the UK last week, uh, talking to them about the Salisbury incident, Yes. And some of the response capable both both with London. This is the scrapple, scrapple poisoning, or is yeah, it a different? Yeah, with okay. uh, yep. with uh, Scotland yep. Yard, and as well yep. as their uh, defense their defense science technology lab that they have there, and looking at some of the capability capacity they have there, and making sure that we're aligned with some of the things we're doing yeah. here uh, to be able to respond to any event that would happen here in the states. Great. Okay, first question is, what do you see as the US Coast Guard's role in supporting NORTHCOM, especially within the context of its Polar Security Cutter Initiative? Relating yeah, thanks for, for bringing that up, because clearly we're, we're reliant on the Coast Guard to bring that capability. Uh, the Polar Star is, is not the answer. Uh, for that, that is, I've been on that icebreaker, and, and this, that is... Um, uh, what was the year it was built? You know, 50 roughly. something years ago, something like that. So mm -hmm. it, uh, it is not, um, uh, you know, the fact the last time it went out, it, you know, it, it had catastrophic uh, failure to, to its, uh, uh, to, uh, to the seals on, on its mm -hmm. propeller. It, it had uh, incinerator fire. I mean, it's just constant, it's just, it's way past its service life. And so we really, we got to really push up the sense of urgency. Carl Schultz is a great partner. We have a yeah. similar perspective moving forward. Uh, whether we end up with three uh, heavy and three medium, or we end up with six of the same, uh, leave to him, but we need that capability and capacity, and we need, it, uh, we need to accelerate it. Uh, right now, we've, uh, the funding is in place. We've been a good advocate, a big advocate, to try to uh, make sure they understand, uh, that everyone understands that there's a, um, uh, there's a DOD equity, equity and the Coast Guard guarding his capability soonest. Uh, and making sure we have the ability to operate uh, within the Arctic. So the good news is it's moving forward. Um, and the good news is that uh, Carl Schultz and his team are great partners as we look at uh, what capability capacity it needs to have uh, so it can interrelate uh, directly with us in the Department of Defense. Uh, and then I would just take that to even in a broader perspective. You know, we're, we're great partners with the Coast Guard on, on a myriad of, uh, of issues, whether it be hurricane response, uh, they support us in the protection of the president in the national capital region on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, we have uh, numerous of, of uh, Carl's team in, in our headquarters uh, that are intertwined within our, um, uh, not just as LNOs, but actually intertwined within our staff. Uh, and we have uh, pushed uh, folks to him as well because so much of what we do, we actually end up doing with, uh, with the with Coast, Coast Guard. Guard. Great. Okay. Um, 
person asks, can you provide your assessment of the emerging hypersonic missile threats? And we talked a little bit about that, but welcome sure. you to expand on it. Yeah, so the couple things on the hypersonic missile threat that I would say are critically important. It really goes back to my whole discussion about what do we need from a sensor architecture, because the, one of the, there's many differences, but one of the big differences with respect to the hypersonics um, is that the trajectory it flies is going to be such that our traditional sensors for ballistic missile defense aren't going to give you the coverage uh, of, that, uh, the, of that threat. And then second, it's not ballistic, and so that, hence you have to keep sensor awareness, you have to have a sensor on it in order to truly understand where it's, where it's going. So that fundamentally changes the problem, if you will, from how are we actually going to keep track of it, but forget about even talking about the defeat part of it, just understanding uh, where it is going. And so that really feeds into the whole architecture that we're trying to place is instead of having a ballistic missile defense architecture, a cruise missile defense architecture, and then a hypersonic uh, architecture, it's how do we have one architecture that then applies to all of those. And I think that works really well for the hypersonics going forward. Uh, second piece I would say that you can't, I don't think you can build a de defense design that doesn't include a space-based sensing layer. So I'm a big advocate for the space-based sensing layer. Whether that be the, just purely the prolifer proliferation of LEO, whether it be a combination of LEO, MEO, and GEO, uh, that, that jury's still out a little bit. We're mm -hmm. still working our way through that. Uh, my my um, preference is, you know, we really have probably a little bit of both. You need both the, um, the kind of the low-tech birds that might be flying around in, in uh, LEO, and then you need the higher tech birds that might be in the, in the MEO and GEO. Uh, and that combination of all of them together is gonna give you that domain awareness that you need to have. But that investment in uh, space is gonna be critically important as we try to solve this hypersonic problem. Um, and that really capitalizing on the commercial access to space that's driven the cost down uh, is something that we really need to look at as, and we are looking at in partnering not only with the commercial companies but taking advantage of that, just the decrease in cost and that access to space. And we're working hard with both uh, uh, Mike Griffin uh, and Ellen Ward mm -hmm. as we go forward to try to figure out what is the best architecture to go forward for the hypersonics. As an aside, space sensor layer seems to be one of those areas where there's strong bipartisan support. I think I'm right on that. Is, is the NDA, is the NDA that is now on the Hill uh, going to make advances in that space in ways that are helpful to you? Uh, I think there's, there is uh, bipartisan support and there is uh, support certainly from Dr. Griffin. Uh, we're still working on to robust up the funding uh, in Got order it. to support that. Great. Um, this question is, given recent events in Glasgow and other airports regarding UAS um, and its ability, you can tell I didn't bring my glasses, <laughs> its ability to significantly disrupt airport operations, do you see UAS becoming a larger threat to the homeland? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we're really working uh, closely with a lot of different partners on this. Um, this, that particular uh, is something when we, I was just again over in UK, we talked uh, uh, at length about this, um, is one, it's, we're partnering with TSA uh, and ultimately, and how do we look at the airports, we're taking the top 30 airports that we think are threatened, uh, partnering with them to see what we can do to help um, uh, TSA actually uh, build uh, defense such that we don't end up with a Gatwick type scenario uh, here in the, uh, in, in the States. Um, that said, there's the broader challenge of the, the UASs and the small UASs in particular. Are, are, it's a very difficult challenge. And it, it starts with authorities. Um, and there is not uh, necessarily universal authorities across all of those that are trying to do something with the kind of UAS. And I'll just use the National Capital Region as an example, where we've been doing several TTXs and simulations with our interagency partners to try to see if we can't get after this together. 
Um, but what we find is the, the authorities for, say, the Department of Defense are slightly different than the authorities for Department of Homeland Security, uh, which are different than the Metropolitan Police, for example, or the Capitol Police. And so we're really looking to see, one, how do we work those authorities together to be closer? Uh, under Secretary Nielsen's uh, leadership when she was um, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary, we work with her to actually marry up our DOD authorities with authorities she was asking for from Congress, mm -hmm. and, and she actually mm -hmm. got NDA language that mirrors somewhat closely to what Boy. the Department of Defense uh, authorities have. Um, but we're also looking to build a common operational picture, because one of the things we find is, again, the National Capital Region is a perfect uh, example to show. Uh, a small UAS can pass through a half a dozen different jurisdictions in a, in a matter of minutes. And so we can't afford to have each of us having our own picture of that. We need to have a common operational picture across the interagency if we're going to be able to effectively uh, defend against that. And so that's something we're leading and uh, partnering with Department of Homeland Security, uh, FAA, uh, and all of uh, the, inter the interagency partners that are here with the National Capital Region to include, again, Capitol Police, Pentagon Police, uh, the Department of Defense at large uh, in order to get after that. But let there be no doubt is a challenging problem. One of the things we find is some of the solution sets that we have and have in place overseas, at, for example, our installations in, in the uh, Middle East, as an example, or as you saw from the recent Iranian examples, uh, those solution sets work well in an environment where you don't have uh, Reagan Airport, uh, International mm -hmm. Airport, right. operating uh, there. And so some of the solutions that we've had in other places are challenged to be effective uh, within, Here. say, for example, Washington, D.C. And so we're really trying to find what are the solution sets that we can build together with our agency, interagency partners that are the best of breed that we mm -hmm. can bring together uh, to ultimately have the ability to defend against this uh, growing threat. Yeah. And again, still let everyone get their packages right, if right. that's right. In the it's end, very challenging. Because clearly, I mean, yep. this, is, this is the future, right? I mean, right. we're going to see a proliferation of these, and, 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 and uh, we're not necessarily fundamentally against that, but we are looking yep. to do it in a safe manner that we can actually provide the appropriate defense. Uh, there's a question here on boost phase um, in missile defense. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what you think the value would be or could be on boost phase and whether that's something the U.S. should be pursuing? Yeah, I think there's, there's huge value to boost phase. And, and uh, you know, one of the, the most obvious ones is if whatever payload it has is now contained within the country or whatever location that it's happened to be launched from and they have to deal with their own uh, issue there. And so that's, that's clearly uh, advantageous. I think from a deterrent standpoint, it has a huge value. Uh, if they know that they have, they are at risk of of that missile being taken out uh, in boost phase over their own national territory, I think that's going to be a great deterrent effect as well. Uh, and from our vantage point, um, if you can even take it even left of launch, uh, it would right. be even better. Right. Um, right. And so the more that you can actually take out the archer instead of the arrow, right. uh, the more effective you're going to be. So we're a big opponent of that. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't necessarily have, you know, we wouldn't be so that necessarily be operating cyber, for example. that. But, yes, right. Right. Yeah. but yeah. We, we clearly are, are uh, supportive of boost phase and left of launch uh, capability that we can continue to develop. Great. Um, question on your role, NORTHCOM's role in counter-narcotics. Yeah, and we do have a role uh, within car narcotics. And, and um, one of the things that I, I guess I just didn't have full understanding of before uh, taking the reins of uh, Northcom um, was just what a national crisis this is. Um, in fact, I'm meeting with the DA uh, administrator tomorrow or next day, something like that. Um, but so we're, we're great partners with, we try to be great partners with DA as well. And why is it? Because it's a national crisis, 70,000 Americans. Um, killed with uh, overdose. How, how can the Department of Defense not be part of that solution set? Now, is, are we the leading federal agency? No, we're not, nor do we need to be. Uh, but we do see we have a role in that. Uh, we have a JTF, JTF North uh, in Texas that uh, 
is uh, focused on trying to help Customs and Border Protection. Um, and we do see a relationship between the migrants and the drug flows and trying to help uh, fill the gaps uh, of those what is do something we've that? been doing. What, what's the relationship you see? Well, first off, uh, the cartels, uh, the same cartels that are working the drug smuggling are working the migrants and, and, and where the migrants are going. We also see them using the migrants as a, detract, a, a distraction. Uh, and so as they push a group of migrants mm -hmm. over here, then the drug smuggling goes over there. Mm -hmm. um, and we see that coordinated uh, behavior, which we're trying to help plug some of those gaps. Mm -hmm. um, we uh, are constantly looking to see what are the things that we can do in order to, to provide uh, assistance uh, to the various agencies uh, working. This, it, it gets even more challenging when you really look at the flow uh, of the precursors and mm -hmm. the flow of the, um, of the narcotics themselves. It used to be, if you look at marijuana, it's you know, big, whatever package it is, it's a big package, it's relatively easy to, to, to find and, and, and ultimately um, uh, take off the streets. Whereas now with fentanyl, et cetera, you're talking such a small, uh, uh, physical size, right. uh, it becomes very challenging uh, in order to interdict that uh, coming across the, the border. So we continue to partner, but we do see that the flow um, increasingly coming through um, um, uh, through the standard routes that we have seen the, the more traditional drugs of uh, continuing to follow those same flows. And so the work that we're doing is really trying to one, uh, physical assistance, I, can, we, can we put UASs up and, and, and uh, sensing and monitoring to help our partners? Uh, two, from an intel scenario, how do, we, how do we help them understand the networks, right? Because it's all done through the networks. And much of the work that we've done overseas in understanding a, uh, an ISIS network is very sure. similar to how we yeah. uh, would take apart a, a drug cartel network, so we're continuing to apply uh, effort there and, and continuing to find ways that we, Department of Defense, can provide assets that will ultimately get after um, these drugs reaching the U.S. and uh, in this case 70,000 Americans did. So. Last question. You'll be glad to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's a little bit of one we've talked about before, but what are you most hoping you're going to see out of this cycle on the Hill in terms of the NDAA? What's in there that you, or not yet in there either way, that you most need to get your job done? Um, you know, I think right now we actually get fairly good support, bipartisan support, mm -hmm. uh, uh, for uh, our Homeland Defense uh, issue set. Uh, I think as we continue to, to uh, move forward, it's a continued support uh, for the ballistic missile defense and maintaining that going forward. I think um, clearly um, uh, getting the ability to get after the cruise missile threat uh, and ultimately getting after the domain awareness, uh, the architecture, and ultimately the defeat mechanisms as we go forward. Uh, we have a, a very good support from the Senate Armed Service Committee and the House Armed Service Committee um, and don't find ourselves uh, misaligned mm -hmm. uh, with congressional intent uh, with respect to the Homeland Defense mission set in any way, shape, or form. You're lucky. You're yes. a lucky person <laughs> for that. Um, General Shaughnessy, I can genuinely say I've, I've done this for about six years here at CSIS, and I don't think I have covered so much territory in one hour <laughs> in all six years. So um, thank you so much for your continued leadership as commander, both NORAD and NORTHCOM. Um, and for taking time to talk about the mission that you and your people are doing every day. Please join me in a round of applause. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more, and remember, you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.